Okay, we'll read Matthew chapter 25. I'll pick it up in verse 31. Verse 31 through verse 46. This obviously has to do with future judgment when the Lord comes. Verse 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and ye gave me meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Naked, and ye clothed me. I was sick, and ye visited me. I was in prison, and ye came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, and fed thee? Or thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger, and took thee in, or naked, and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison, and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in, naked, and ye clothed me not, sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee hungry, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal." And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would impress upon us such truths as you have placed in this portion of Scripture. May they rest in our hearts, and may we glorify you in all that we think or do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this is a rather interesting discourse here where the Lord Jesus is teaching certain things about um, when he comes. So the first question I would ask you is, what is the context of this? Of whom is Jesus speaking, and what is he talking about? Well, I'll answer the last question first with respect to what he is talking about. He is speaking about the final judgment and about what the king, in verse 34, who sits upon the throne of his glory, verse 31, shall do when he judges. So he's speaking about how people shall be gathered before his throne, how he will separate the people, and what criteria he will use when he judges people, and what will be their final disposition. One group will be eternal glory, life everlasting, and the other group is everlasting punishment. So what we're talking about here is the eternal disposition of people that are brought before 
his throne of judgment before the king of glory's judgment. So what is the context here? It's three days, it's Nisan the 11th, it's three days before Jesus will be crucified. Um, And he's going to be crucified for the sins of his people. He has been teaching his disciples for three and a half years, and he has been telling them everything that is going to happen to him. And he's also been telling them why it's going to happen. So here he is now. He is in Jerusalem for the purpose of dying for the sins of his people. Um, And in this discourse here, as he's uh, speaking, he has been teaching in the temple. This teaching begins all the way back in chapter 22, verse 46. I'm I'm sorry, back in 21, verse 23, where it is first said that he's teaching before the chief priests and the elders of the people. Then it says he teaches the Pharisees, and then he teaches the disciples of the Pharisees. Then he teaches the Herodians, and then he teaches the Sadducees. And in the course of all of this teaching, he eventually shuts everybody down. They are inspecting Jesus, trying to trip him up, trying to ask him some question that he either cannot answer, which is ridiculous because he is the, um, the living God, the true and the living God. He is the author of the law and is the author of all of the Mosaic law. And so he knows the answers to every question because he's the one who wrote it. He is the author of all those things. So the leadership of the people is questioning him. They have rejected him as leader and they have been actively... Um, endeavoring to persecute him, and eventually they're going to um, uh, lay false accusation against him, which leads to his crucifixion. So in verse, uh, I think it's 22, verse 46, Jesus basically shuts them down. They, they finally get to the point where they can't answer, they cannot ask him questions that he cannot answer, and he flips them back on their head. So in verse 46 of 22, it says, and no man was able to answer him a word because he asked them a question, Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions, meaning no man of the leadership. No, they, were, they gave up trying to um, entrap him or trick him because they couldn't do it. So after he shuts up the leadership, then it says he teaches the multitudes and the disciples. That's chapter 23, verse 1. Now he's teaching the, been, uh, teaching the multitudes and his disciples. And chapter 23, as you'll recall, is really very critical of the leadership and critical of national Israel. Now, then you move to the end of chapter 23, and you get to verse 37 and 39, and you can appreciate that because Jesus knows everything, he knows of their rejection of God, that as a nation they have rejected him, and he knows of their disobedience, and he knows of the coming judgment that is the result of their disobedience of him. And so as he's leaving the temple after having this uh, long discourse teaching in the temple, He tells his disciples when they show him the buildings of the temple, as though he did not know they were there. He was just amongst all of them. But he tells them that every stone shall be cast down. Not one stone shall be uh, left upon each other. Now, he's speaking of a couple things, but I'm just speaking historically superficially. He knows the Romans are coming in 70 AD, and he knows they're going to lay the place waste. They're going to burn the temple down and they're going to destroy the entire city. So he knows that, and it obviously it grieves him very much so because he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, even though they've rejected him and they've crucified him. He takes no pleasure in their um, punishment. So he leaves the temple, goes down, brook, crosses the brook Kidron, and he goes up into the Mount of Olives, which sits directly across the, the brook of Kidron from the temple. And so from while he's sitting there, you can see all of these things. And now he speaks privately to his disciples. He's speaking privately to his disciples, and they have some questions about all of the things that he has just said. And these are 
you know, big questions, the $64,000 question. So in verse 3 of chapter 24, they ask, when shall these things be? What shall be the sign of thy coming? What shall be the sign of the end of the world or the termination of the age? You know, we live in a present age and there's going to come a time when time is no more and God's going to pull the plug on this world and things are going to be done. So those are big questions. And I know, again, there's also some superficial answers. He answers it on multiple levels. And like I said, we know that the Romans are going to come. So the end of that age might be thought of as 70 AD. But really what's in view here, based on what he is answering, is the end of the present age and world that we live in. So here he is. He's sitting on the Mount of Olives like an enthroned king with his subjects before him. You saw this when he was uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount. He was seated and he had all of the people before him as though he was a king because he indeed is a king. And so he answers his disciples' questions. Um, Again, they've asked the question, what is the sign of thy coming? Jesus, what is the sign of your Jesus coming? And so the Lord Jesus is speaking about himself when he answers the question as we get into Matthew 25. He's speaking about himself. So in verse 31 of chapter 25, he opens with, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Well, that's a pretty big sign. When you see me coming with all of the angels and I'm sitting on my throne of glory, you know that I have come. That, that's a pretty obvious sign here. So he's speaking of himself. Um, previously in the Gospel of Matthew, he has identified himself as the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man. Back in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, and when he's there, he will suffer many things, he will be killed, and he will be raised again on the third day. So He's told them that that what's going to happen when he gets into Jerusalem, and now he's there in Jerusalem, and they still don't have it in their head that he's going to be crucified in in, um, three more days. So he's told them what's going to happen, and then down in verse 27, in the same uh, um, place in Matthew chapter 16, he says, quote, The Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. So Matthew 16 is a, obvious a pointer passage to what's taking place here because he's talking about the same thing. We're just going to get more details in Matthew 25 than he gave in Matthew 16. Then he said, hey, Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now, reward has two meanings in the Bible. Usually, we think of a reward as something that is good, and that is true, but sometimes reward means things that are bad. It can mean that, too. Uh, Scripture tells us that Judas, who we know, betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. It says that Judas purchased a field with the reward of iniquity. So there's a, and then it talks about he hanged himself, and then he, he, he died in the field. Um, the Bible speaks of the wages of sin are death. So that would be the reward. That would be a reward. If you sin, your reward is eternal death. So he's talking about here in Matthew 16 about, hey, I'm coming back in the glory of my Father, and I'm going to judge. And I'm going to give everybody according to what things they have done. Now, 
be careful with that, that you don't begin to already go down the road of I've got to do good works. So there's a relationship between doing good works and being rewarded with eternal glory. That's not the way it works. If you get down to, uh, when you get to Revelation chapter 20, when it speaks of judgment again, you'll find out that um, people are judged on two things. One, whether or not their name is written in the book of life, they go to eternal glory. And those that are judged by their works, they all are cast into the lake of fire. So the reward for your works is really eternal damnation. And so when we get into Matthew here, 25, I'm going to help you appreciate the distinction that is made here. It's a subtle distinction, but it's a very meaningful one. So here we are in Matthew 25, verse 31 and verse 32. We read, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory and before him shall be gathered all nations, and he, that would be the Son of Man, that's Jesus, shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. We do know that Jesus is identified as the great shepherd. He says that, I'm the shepherd. So he's obviously speaking of himself here, and he is sitting on the throne of his glory. And we know that in John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus and his Father are one. He says that, I and my Father are one. And so before the world was, Jesus had glory with the Father. He says that in John chapter 17, verse 5, this is right before he's going to be betrayed, and he's praying, and in verse 5 of John 17, he says, And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee, before the world was. So he's speaking of his eternality and what glory he had with the Father back in eternity past. So here we are in Matthew, in in the Gospels, um, we can appreciate that Jesus stepped out of his glory, voluntarily stepped out of his glory, and he came to minister unto the people and do his Father's will. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 7, it speaks about this. It says that he took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So he took upon the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, stepping out of the eternal glory he had with the Father. And so we should appreciate that while he is here ministering, that in him dwelt all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All of that dwelt in him. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in him bodily. He is fully God and fully man. He always was. He had simply stepped out of his glory, but he was still divine. He was still uh, God. So having stepped out of his glory, it says here, we know that we continue in, in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Upon which, upon the cross, in the course of his death, we know that Jesus, who did no sin, in whom was no sin, and who knew no sin, he suffered the wrath of God the Father for our benefit, for the sins of his people, for the sins of his sheep, as identified here in Matthew 25. He died for the sheep. Now, it continues here in Philippians 2, wherefore, in verse 9, God also hath highly exalted him and given him, that would be Jesus, given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God the Father. So the angels, if they have knees, they're going to bend their knees. If they have a tongue, they're going to confess that Jesus is Lord, including that um, most evil of all angels, Satan, Lucifer. He's going to bend the knee too, and he's going to confess with his tongue that Jesus is Lord. Every, every, every creature in heaven above and things on the earth and things under the earth, they shall all bow the knee to Jesus. So here he is. He's going to sit on the throne of his glory. And so we read Psalm 24, and Psalm 24 asks the question in verse 8 and 10. It asks the question twice. Who is the king of glory? Who is the king of glory? Well, I'm from the scriptures, I'm sharing with you, it is Christ Jesus. He is the king of glory. Now, this was foretold in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, we have some very interesting language here. It says in verse 6, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So right there in the first um, sentence of Isaiah chapter 6, you get this duality of natures with respect to Jesus. He is fully man and he is fully God. A child is born. He is the son of Mary. That's Matthew chapter 1, verse 20. A son is given. He is the son of God. It's also Matthew chapter 1, verse 20, because it says there that what uh, would be born of her was conceived in her by the Holy Ghost. So Mary is the mother, and God the Father is, um, is the father. <laughs> Let me know if that's too complicated for you. Um, the genealogies affirm this. The genealogies affirm this. If you were to look at the genealogy in the book of Luke, in verse 23, it says here, Luke chapter 3, verse 23, and Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, and there's a parenthetical remark here, which is extremely important, as was supposed the son of Joseph. He's not the son of Joseph, but it was supposed that he was the son of Joseph because he's adopted. He was adopted by Joseph. So you continue down to verse 31, and it tells you that he is ultimately the son of David, meaning that Mary, his mother, is directly related to David. Mary is directly related to David. So in the flesh, he's directly related to David. So it can be truly said he is the son of David. Now, when you go to Matthew, Matthew has a different genealogy. In verse 1, it says very plainly, this is the book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of uh, Abraham. And you get down to verse 6, and it again tells us that uh, Jesse begat David, the king, and David begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Uriah. So here, what you should get from this is David is the king, and Jesus is related to David, the king. And so you get down to verse 16, and it said, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Verse 16 is not telling you he was born of Joseph. It's telling you that he was born of Mary. So God has placed that in there so that we would appreciate that Jesus being related to David two ways. One, actually the son through Mary, and the other by virtue of adoption. Jesus has the legal right to sit on the throne and be king of Israel. That would be the, the national Israel, but we know that Israel is broader than that. Israel is our, um, consists of all the Christians, and that comes from the book of Romans. So here we are in Isaiah 9, 6. It's telling us about this peculiar nature that the um, coming king shall have, that he's both a child that is born and he is a son that is given. 
And now it speaks of his rule. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, just like you're, when you're in the military, you have on your shoulder, uh, you wear uh, ensigns that are indicative of your rank and your authority. So it is with Christ. The government is on his shoulder. And his name shall be called, and these are very interesting names, he shall be called Wonderful, he shall be called Counselor, he shall be called the Mighty God. He is all of these things. He shall be called the Everlasting Father. That's very interesting that the Son is called the Father. That's what the Scripture says. He shall be called the Prince of Peace. And it says of him that the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. We're speaking about an eternal reign here. There shall be no end to it. Upon the throne of David, which we've already talked about, he has the legal right to that throne, and upon his kingdom to order it, and to establish it with judgment, and here we are in Matthew 25, speaking of the judgment, and with justice from henceforth, even forever. And then it tells us who's going to accomplish all this. It says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. God himself is going to take care of all of this, and he's going to set this whole thing up. So, obviously, he has the right to rule, and so when Psalm 24, verse 8 and 9, asks the question, who is the king of glory? The answer, of course, is it's Christ Jesus. In Isaiah 42, verse 8, the Lord helps us with this also. He says, I am the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, which means Jehovah. That is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. God doesn't give his glory to anybody save his son, save himself. So, again, here we are in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, and it's speaking of the, this uh, king who comes in glory and so jesus speaking about himself he is the son of man he is the king of glory he is the mighty god and he is going to judge everyone that will ever live until the time that he comes in glory at which time it will be the end of the world and end of the ages simply stated you know in the gospel of john he says that all judgment hath been commended unto me the father judgeth no man but i judge so all judgment's been given to him so now Back to the disciples' question, what shall be the sign of thy coming and at the end of the world or the termination of the age? And so Jesus has had a lot to say in answer to the question. And here we are at the end of that. And this is where he finishes answering all those questions. He finishes it speaking exclusively of himself and judgment. When judgment comes, that is the end. And so he finishes speaking of himself at the time when everybody is judged. So, verse 31, 32, it says, um, Before him shall be gathered all nations, that's verse 32, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. So, in verse 33, um, Jesus, having all peoples gathered before him, shall divide the people into two groups, sheep on the right, goats on the left. Now, keep in mind... Jesus is the Almighty God. He is omnipotent, meaning all-powerful, and he is omniscient. He knows everything about everything and about everyone. He knows what is in man's heart. Even we don't know what is in our own heart, but he knows what's in our heart. In um, Hebrews 4.13, it says that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Everything is naked and open to the eyes of Christ. He is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. What does that mean? What it means is Jesus knows what we think 
and he knows why we think it. He knows what we think, and he knows why we think it. He knows what we do, and he knows why we do it. He knows what our motivations are, and he, notice, and he knows what fruit it will bear, whether it be good or evil. So knowing what things he does, the Lord separates people as a shepherd divides his goats. Verse 33, and he shall set the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So as a king, he's speaking in a declarative, in a declarative way. He simply states what is going to take place. Sheep are on the right, goats are on the left, and he's made a declarative statement to the sheep. He says that they're blessed of the father, and they are going to inherit the kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Over in verse 41, he's speaking to the goats. Then he shall he say to them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. So the, um, the distinction between where these people t- groups spend their eternity is, is remarkable, and it's quite tragic, to be honest with you. So a declarative statement, the sheep are blessed of my father, they inherit the kingdom, and what does it mean to inherit something? It means that somebody has to die. A last will and testament is not in effect until such time as the testator, the one who made it out, dies. And so someone is going to have to die here, and we know that that someone, of course, is going to be Jesus. He's going to die in three days. So he's talking about himself again here, that for them to inherit something, that somebody must die, and that's going to be him. Now, it says that they're going to inherit the kingdom that is prepared for them. So they've done nothing to prepare the kingdom. It's been prepared by by God. It's been prepared uh, by Christ. He's done everything that is necessary, including die, for someone to inherit the kingdom. And it's been prepared before, it says, from the foundation of the world for the sheep. So God has known the sheep since before the foundation of the world, and he has prepared a place for them that they will inherit when he dies. So now, as we go through and look at what he says to these things, I want you to pay attention here what it is that distinguishes these groups from each other. It's not what they do so much, but rather who they are doing it for. It's who they are doing it for. He speaks in verse 35, I was hungry and he gave me meat. I was thirsty and he gave me drink. I was a stranger and he took me in. Naked and he clothed me. I was sick, and he visited me. I was in prison, and he came unto me. So it's all about doing things for him. And verse 40, he sums it up and says, And the king, that's Christ, shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, ye have done it unto me. So he's saying that if you do something unto the sheep, you're doing it unto me. So we can appreciate that they are serving what he says are his brethren. And who are the brethren of Christ? Who is the body of Christ? It's the church. It's Christians. So if you've done things unto the body of Christ, then you are doing it unto Christ himself. You remember when Paul is on the road to Damascus and the Lord comes to him and he says, why do you prick against, kick against the pricks? 
Why do you persecute me, he says? Well, you know, obviously he's thinking to himself, what are you talking about? I think I'm doing the will of God. I think I'm serving you. But he says, no, when, you're, when you are persecuting Christians, you are persecuting me personally. So he equates you and me with him. If you are a saint and somebody persecutes you, they are persecuting God. If somebody serves you, they are serving God. So Jesus is sharing with them that he is one with his people. And so he says, I was hungry, I was thirsty, I was stranger, was a stranger, I was naked, I was sick, I was in prison. And what does that describe? That is the description of every person here before they became a Christian. That describes your spiritual state, your spiritually depraved state, before somebody came to you and preached the gospel. So to feed somebody that's hungry is to give them the gospel. The Lord speaks of um, teaching people as giving them meat or drink. Um, When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. The Lord speaks about that. He says he sits on the well of Samaria, and he says, if you drink of my water, then you'll never thirst again. So we are to give people a spiritual drink when we give them the gospel. I was a stranger, he says, and you took me in. To take somebody in is to preach the gospel to them, and then uh, as God puts the truth on their heart, then they're folded into the sheepfold. I was naked and you clothed me. We've gone to Isaiah 61.10 a number of times where it speaks about giving somebody the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness. That's simply preaching the gospel. When I was sick, he healed me. And so to preach the gospel, somebody is spiritually sick, Um, because of their sin. They are eternally sick because of their sin. So to preach the gospel is to heal them. And he says, when I was in prison, you did visit me. Everybody is a prisoner of Satan until such time as they are released from prison through the preaching of the gospel. During the fellowship meal, we can talk about that, and I can give you all sorts of scriptural references for that. But I want you to appreciate simply to preach the gospel to God's people is to serve God's people and is to serve God himself. Now, um, to do that is to engage in activities that God has ordained and empowered you to do. It is to engage in activities that God has ordained and empowered you to do. It is God working in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now, notice here that the sheep don't even know that they are serving King Jesus when they are engaged in those activities. They ask the question, When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? They don't even know that they're serving God in that way because they don't appreciate that relationship. But he's telling them, you serve the uh, sheep, you are serving me. So what I don't want you to construe this is to mean that you need to go out and engage in works. You need to run out and start becoming part of a church's prison ministry and engage in these things in a superficial, outward way because it's not it. It's what's taking place in your heart. So you can never do good works to please God. It simply cannot be done. In Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, the Lord says very clearly, for by grace are ye saved through faith, That is not of yourselves. The faith isn't even yours. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God shuts that down immediately. Nobody stands before God boasting about what things they've accomplished as though it might merit his favor. He makes that very clear. No, nobody is going to boast. You can't even understand the gospel unless he opens it up to you. And he says that in 1 Corinthians after he runs down all of the people that do get it. He's talking about how simple they are. And he shares with us, he says that no flesh 
should glory in his presence. That's 1 Corinthians 1.29. No flesh is going to glory in his presence. So in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, then you get to verse 10, and he says that we, the Christians, are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So although the glory goes to God, again, who is the king of glory? It is Christ. It is Christ working in us to will and do of his good pleasure. So these people, these sheep, are engaged in works that God has determined that they should do, and it's him working in them for his benefit as they go out and they preach the gospel. To them, the sheep, is the inheritance, the blessing of the kingdom. It is for them that Christ died. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that their sins were imputed to Christ by faith and the righteousness of God by faith was imputed to them. Notice in verse 37 that he identifies these people as righteous. Verse 37 in Matthew 25, he says, Then shall the righteous answer him. The only way to become righteous is if God imputes his righteousness to you. So they are righteous by faith. They are blessed of God. God tells us, with respect to our own righteousness, he says in Isaiah 64, 6, all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Verse 12, Romans 3, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. So respecting the sheep here in Matthew 25, let us make no mistake, it is not their works that merit the favor of the king. They were blessed to inherit a kingdom prepared for them from the foundation of the world. In um, Psalm 24, which we looked at in verse 5, it says here, He, meaning the saint, shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. God gives this blessing and gives this righteousness um, simply because he is loving and merciful. So, what do you do if you want to know if you're one of the sheep or one of the goats, or rather, what do you do if you want to be one of the sheep? Well, this is obvious. You go to the shepherd. You go to the shepherd. You go to the king of glory. You go to Christ Jesus before he comes in his glory with his angels with him. You go before the end, before that comes, and before he separates the people, the goats to everlasting punishment, and the righteous sheep unto everlasting, um, to eternal life. Um, you go before it is too late, before the end of the world or the termination of the age. Now, in context, what does that mean? It's the end of age for you when you die. That's when the Lord comes from you, comes for you. So you, got to do, you have to do this before you die. Um, when you die, it is the end of the age for you. In Hebrews 9.27, it says, It is appointed unto men once to die, but after this... The judgment. So in context of all that he's saying here with respect to the spiritual truths, you got to go, you have to go to the Lord um, before he comes for you in judgment. So what do you do? You go to Jesus, you go to the King of glory, you ask him to bless you with salvation, to give you faith, to trust in him, to give you this righteousness of God. And as the Bible says very clearly, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. So if your faith and your trust is exclusively in him, in the king of glory, that he died for your sins, imputing his righteousness, and by f- which he does by faith to you, then to you he shall say, when you stand before him in judgment, come, ye blessed of my father, inherit 
the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Amen.